Sup, freaks? It's Marty here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. The immense pleasure of sitting down with our good friend Matt Odell, and we were joined by our good friend Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation. We sat down to talk about Orwellian overreach during this pandemic lockdown and the response from China, uh, the the uh, capture of the World Health Organization and other such organizations, and the misinformation that's been going around, the re- the reactions to uh, people getting the virus and what governments are trying to do to make sure that the virus doesn't spread, which includes things like bracelets, tracking people, uh, stopping people at borders. We, we went through the gamut, went down the list and talked about each, uh, reaction and whether or not they are, uh, good or bad for, for civil liberties moving forward. Cause remember, once you see, see these civil liberties, they'll say it's only temporary. Hey, we only need to do this while the pandemic's here, quote unquote pandemic, uh, we'll give them back to you once it's passed. That never happens. Never happens. Never happens. It never happens. It's never temporary, freaks. Don't forget that. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. This episode was brought to you by our good friends at the Cash App. You freaks already know all about them. They're helping you... S- I almost said sat stacks. They're helping you stack sats. Why do I mess that up every time? You can stack sats on the Cash App. Turn your USD into sats. You can send sats, receive sats, sell sats if you so please. Uh, they're making sats to standard on Android. Uh, and if you're an Android user and you also have an iPhone, you can actually get sats to standard on your iPhone. Matt O'Dell showed me that little hack hack around yesterday. He's got sats to standard on both his Android device and his iOS device. Lucky bastard. Uh, and they're, they've teased an auto-buy function. Not sure what it's coming out, but it's on the roadmap. Hopefully it comes out soon. Soon TM. On top of that, they have Cash App Investing. If you're buying the dips and the stock market plummets, Cash App's letting you buy some stocks. All right, and you can stack slivers of stocks too, even uh, after this this massive crash in the stock markets. If your favorite stock's still a little too expensive for you, you can buy as little as $1 of that stock. You're stacking slivers of stocks too. If you so please, you don't have to. I know freaks are like, why? Why, why, why do you have to talk about the stocks? We don't want the stocks. We just want the stat- sats. We just want the sats. We don't want the stocks. I don't care, all right? It's there, optionality. Some people want the stonks, and maybe they don't speak up on Twitter, okay? If you want the stonks, I have to let the people know. You can stack slivers of stonks. It's there on the app, okay? And if you download the app, before you download the app, I have to let you know that Cash App Investing is a subsidiary of Square, remember SIPC, but when you do finally download the app, make sure you use the code stackingsats. That's one word, S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. All right, download the Cash App today and enjoy this episode with Alex Gladstein. I always do. Take care. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. What is up, freaks? Matt O'Dell's uh, card block is not on today, so we hit record and we're going. Matt, what's going on? I'm ready to go. Excited to have Alex Thank here. You. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, Matt just introduced and we're sitting down uh, with the Human Rights Foundation's Alex Gladstein. Alex, welcome back to the podcast. It's a pleasure and an honor. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here, especially right now. Uh, The block is hot with the coronavirus and the coronavirus has governments overreaching for power around the world. We've got a lot to talk about today. You've put forth a very good list of topics that we're going to just walk through. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a crazy amount to cover. Uh, let's start with just the the overarching topic of this episode, which is privacy in the age of pandemics. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, just it's so crazy to think about how much has changed in the last year, right, since I was on the show last time. Um, but generally speaking, I keep coming back to some of the themes you guys always discuss in terms of how governments have overreached in other times of crisis, right? When you looked at what happened after 9-11. I was actually reading an analysis done by the Lawfare blog where they, they reposted something that had happened a couple days after 9-11, which was this huge bipartisan group of uh, people came together and said, hey, look, this is really bad and it was a huge tragedy, but let's make sure to react in a way that does not violate our freedoms and values. Obviously, they lost, right, in, in the way that, you know, security was operationalized after 9-11. But it was interesting to see that, of course, people were thinking about the same things as we are right now when it comes to COVID. However, what I will say is that, like, COVID is not necessarily like terrorism in as much as it's much less of a boogeyman. Like, you know, 9-11 was an unspeakable tragedy, but generally speaking, uh, <clears throat> these, these are events that are disconnected and happen um, far, far fewer, you know, and far less frequently. Um, COVID is something that's like actually endangering the lives of uh, hundreds of thousands of people around the world. I mean, even by the official numbers, 50,000 have died, right? Um, I personally think that more than 50,000 have died in China alone. I personally think that more than 25,000 have died in Iran alone. So, you know, I think this thing's going to kill at least a quarter million before it's done. So it's not really a boogeyman. But still, we can't compromise our values. And I think we have to fight this thing in a way that that reflects and, and preserves freedom. Um, but you have to ask yourself, what are governments going to do, right? What's the line? Uh, never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But wouldn't you, wouldn't you think that's a bigger boogeyman like than a terrorist attack? Yeah, the boogeyman could be like the war on viruses from here on out. Yeah, that- no, that, that's fair that's actually fair what i mean by that is that like i guess like the government just like held over our heads this idea that we were going to get attacked as an excuse to take all of our liberties i know we will see more pandemics and they will exist and they they will actually kill huge numbers of people so i guess do you see what i'm saying there i'm just trying to provide some nuance here like i'm not someone who believes that this is a hoax or that covid is nothing to worry about or it's just the flu i just want to make that really clear. I think this is like an urgent issue that both community-wise and humanity-wise, we need to rise up to meet on the same level as something like sending someone to space or um, exploring the world 500 years ago. Like it's something that communities and societies need to like figure out how to defeat so that we can continue living our lives. It's a real, real thing in a way that I think this war on terror thing was like a lot less of a real thing. Um, but I do see your point. But real crises yeah. are easier to take advantage than fake crises. Yeah, which makes today's conversation even more important. Like, like I, I want to lay out like how an open society should react to this thing. 
And at the end of the day, there are some pretty clear lines that we can draw and we can have a debate about what's an open society and what's not, but there are some evidence-based uh, reasons to not want to do things like mass surveillance and to basically say that we don't need a police state to fight the virus in the same way that we don't need a police state to fight terrorism. Um, <clears throat> all I'm saying is that like, we, we really need to like operationalize and meme these ideas because we will have more of these pandemics. They will happen what once every decade or whatever. Yeah. So we I need think... to expect that, that even open societies will need to react to them in a way that doesn't compromise our liberties. And I think the the best way to sort of drive this point home is let's point out the the inability of the state and its institutions to sort of handle this disease from the onset. So we have the World Health Organization uh, basically mm -hmm. telling people not to wear masks. It, it doesn't make a big difference. We had uh, the Got mayor it. in New York City, the health director in New York City, telling everybody to uh, to turn away from racism and go the to Surgeon the Chinese General's New Year's office. parades. Yeah. And so we have all these governments and institutions, basically their first reaction to the virus was obviously inept and incompetent. And now uh, they're leveraging fear to get more power to react to this virus, which to me at least, obviously they have no grasp on how to handle it from the onset. Yeah. So let's get into values. I mean, there's a guy who's a pretty well-known China quote-unquote expert. His name is Bruno Mashesh, um, I think is his name. He's a guy who uh, had a, one of the worst takes I've ever seen on Twitter yesterday. Very, very hot take like, last night. He said basically that the religion of privacy is going to get us all killed. And I, I wanted to, I, I responded to him basically saying that, you know, who's going to tell this guy that the religion of privacy, quote-unquote, and, and other civil liberties is actually this core defense mechanism that keeps our societies from devolving into things like Xinjiang and North Korea. Like civil liberties and privacy are what we need to aim for and protect. And what I really want to help challenge is this idea that like centralized statist regimes are better at handling this, you know, public health crises than democracies. I just don't think it's borne out by the facts. So what we need to start with is China and Wuhan. I mean, the only reason we have a pandemic right now, the only reason that we're all like social distancing and some countries are in lockdown and, you know, we're about to enter a very exacerbated, uh, arguably depression, um, is, is because the Chinese Communist Party covered up the outbreak at the end of December, right? So they knew from doctors at Wuhan Central Hospital that there was this dangerous new disease that seemed to be communicatable human to human. And they refused to put a warning out and they let millions of Chinese people leave Wuhan on January 1 to go to back to where they came from. And they let flights go to Seattle, go to New York, go to Bangkok. So the New York Times did a study on this, 7 million people left Wuhan between December 31 and January 23rd, which is when finally the Chinese authorities kind of like started to lock down Wuhan. So the pandemic was sparked by a cover-up where the World Health Organization was complicit, right? So World Health Organization officials were alerted at the end of December by Taiwanese authorities that this thing could be communicable human to human. The World Health Organization didn't tweet until December, didn't tweet until, uh, or issue a public statement until January 21st that this thing could spread human to human. In fact, as late as the 14th and the 17th, they were posting 
uh, tweets denying it, basically saying that that it, that it wasn't communicable human to human. So this whole thing was born out of a culture of secrecy, lies, censorship, and authoritarianism. And I think that's just important to think about. And to hone in there at the World Health Organization, well, Horth, why do I keep saying that? Uh, and Taiwan, right? It, it is becoming glaringly obvious that they are captured by the Chinese Communist Party. There was an interview last week, I believe, with a Taiwanese reporter who asked the American he- head of World, oh, she's Ho- a hero. World, World Health Organization uh, what he thought of Taiwan's response, and he wouldn't even respond. And he, he, and he, he, and he, he was like, what did he, you say? And then she's like, I want to talk about Taiwan, and then he hangs up. It's actually an incredible yeah. clip that you all should see. But well, yeah, first I mean, he look, said, First, he said we already talked about China, so he's like trying to concede that Taiwan is part of China already. So the World Health Organization is a political organization. It excludes Taiwan, and it it, it refers to it considers Taiwan in its data sets as a Chinese province called Taipei and its environs. If you actually look up the data set, which is so juvenile and childish, um, and what happens is that the rest of the world accepts the WHO data at face value. So not only do they accept the Chinese death and case count, which we can get into in a little bit, but they also accept the fact that Taiwan is a province of China. So you have newspapers like the New York Times and the Financial Times just kind of regurgitating this interpretation. And you look at all these fancy little charts, these exponential charts that everybody's sharing. Taipei's not on these charts. Taiwan's not on these charts because folks are basically willing to tow whose line. Um, so again, the WHO is a political organization that excludes Taiwan, despite the fact that Taiwan has done one of the best jobs in, in fighting the virus. Um, and I, I think just generally speaking, just to tie up this idea of dictatorship being bad for public health, it goes back to Chern- the Chernobyl effect, right? So I don't know if any of the freaks have seen the HBO series. I know it's not entirely historically accurate, but it's an incredible piece of television and it really helps highlight how <clears throat> dictatorships and climates of censorship can be really bad for humans. Uh, you know, the explosion uh, at Chernobyl was caused by human error attributed to people who wanted to make a particular type of energy quota at the time. And they, they went beyond what was safe for their own jobs and careers, you know, in a way that was reckless and ended up causing absolutely devastating effect, obviously, on hundreds of thousands of people. Then after the uh, catastrophe had happened, the Soviet Union censored the news and prevented anyone from learning about it. In fact, the outside world only learned about it from like, uh, you know, different readings that they started seeing in their equipment in Sweden and in Germany. So the Chernobyl effect is what happens when a, uh, a government, a totalitarian or authoritarian government, um, puts loyalty to the state and party over the uh, public health and public good. And that's what you saw with the Wuhan outbreak and the cover-up uh, in China. And it's what you saw the, the World Health Organization be complicit in. And this organization needs a you know complete overhaul, uh, in my opinion. It has actually been dangerous and has been harmful for humans, not only for the reasons that you point out with regard to misinformation about masks and, and whether or not it's an airborne disease, but most importantly, because they refuse to acknowledge that China, actually the Chinese government spread the disease at the beginning. There are all these amazing conferences that the WHO did the end of January, early February, where they're sitting with Xi Jinping on a stage talking about how great of a job China was doing. And it's just, you know, it beggars our belief. And it really, it, it really, uh, you know, it's kind of just so condescending that they would think that we would, we would agree with them on this no? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty, Disgusting, actually. 
Yeah, and, and, and The Economist did a study uh, over the last 50 years looking at open societies versus closed ones. And generally speaking, when it comes to epidemics, democracies like handled them better. Uh, I mean, you don't want a climate of fear and a climate of censorship when it comes to uh, a public health crisis. In the same way that <clears throat> Amartya Sen, who's a really famous um, uh, economist, uh, he did a study of famine. And he, he basically pointed out that like famines have never happened in a liberal democracy for the reasons of free information flow, free press, things like that. Um, for the same reasons, uh, you know, epidemics are much less likely to happen in a society that prizes openness and free flow of information and doesn't have censorship. Um, so societies that most tightly adhere to those values, I believe are actually going to be most performant in these times of crisis. Yeah. And I, I mean, just to hone in on the censorship aspect from China, particularly like they censored the doctor who, uh, brought up the fact that this was spreading and I believe he's even caught it like early December. And then, uh, as people were being quarantined and forced quarantined and welded into their houses throughout China, they were trying to share information on WeChat. Uh, and a lot of people were just getting, uh, vanished from the app. And then some people even said getting arrested, personally as well disappeared i mean some of the doctors who found this thing were detained citizen journalists were disappeared obviously there was mass censorship of conversation on this topic among the country's social media uh, machine um <clears throat> and sadly a lot of those doctors ended up dying of the disease um Dr. Lee uh, being, being sort of the famous one who became like a martyr. Um, but there are others too. And this same thing happened in other countries. I mean, it wasn't just China. Uh, there had been a big construction kind of collaboration between the Chinese government and the Iranian government. So there were a lot of people flying back and forth between Wuhan and Iran. So we saw Iran become like the second epicenter, right? And it's like what? It's like April 1st. Iran has like disappeared from the news. You don't read about it anymore. But the virus continues to ravage Iran. And what was so crazy was at the end of February, you were seeing stuff like, you know, you know, numerous people inside the Iranian uh, regime were just getting it and dying from the disease. The health so the minister, disease act, the top health minister got it. More than 10 percent of the quote unquote, you know, rubber stamp parliament got it. Um, numerous aides to even Khamenei himself. So this disease totally ravaged Iran, continues to. There are satellite images of mass graves, and yet they're reporting only 3,000 have died, right? Um, the worst thing was, and we can get into this, and this is a tricky subject for some folks, but this idea of like religion, <clears throat> religious liberty versus like common sense, right? So in Iran, they have like these um, holy sites, right? And the religious authorities in Iran are under a lot of pressure, right? They are under... Uh, not only their own pressure from spending all of their money that they have on, you know, an occupation of Syria, essentially, but they're also under pressure from U.S. sanctions, etc. So they're tight. And now they're even tighter because of the price of oil, right? It's a rentier oil state. So they're really, really screwed. But to keep, you know, their popularity alive, they have to kind of appeal to the conservative base, right? So they were like, continuing to encourage people to go on these pilgrimages to these holy sites in February. And, and people were like doing some wild stuff. Like there are some of these sites where people like lick like certain like artifices and they weren't like stopping people from doing this. This one city calm became like an epicenter and there just weren't limitations. So people kept flocking to it. 
and the government continued to deny that there was a problem. And now they have like this thing. And the crazy thing about the virus is it doesn't discriminate. And you're seeing that, right? With like, what, like what at this point, three of the seven leaders of G7 countries are, you know, in quarantine at home. Like this thing doesn't only go after poor people, right? So it started to, as Matt was saying, it started to go after some of the people in, in the regime and they started to spread it amongst each other. Um, and the fact that Iran is going ha- to be so devastated by this disease, it reflects the character of that government uh, 100%. And the worst thing is they have a state-operated airline called Mahan Air that, you know, because the operators in Mahan Air were not allowed to tell their employees that this was a severe or dangerous thing, they kept running flights, flights to London, flights to Italy, flights to LA. And, you know, people just would get off these flights and not be checked by authorities in the secondary countries, in the transit countries. So Iran was was key in the whole super spreading of this thing. So, you know, dictatorship and lies and secrecy were so elemental and instrumental in in the, in the global spread of, of this disease from, from day one. Yeah, and again, talking about liberal democracies probably being able to respond better to this, even if they are able to respond better, the, the inability, or not inability, the, the, uh, the lack of willingness for these despotic governments to actually be forthright with the data and, and uh, alert the rest of the world really puts us uh, again, like we're, we're starting a couple steps behind it's, trying to react. It's our to this. problem, right, Marty? I mean, like this whole, as highlights the whole interconnectedness of the world now, like we can sit here in America and say, oh, whatever, it's happening in Iran and China. And that's literally what like millions of Americans were doing. And our government. Millions of us and our government too. So our White House and us, we were sitting here on Twitter in late January <clears throat> watching. I mean, we all can remember, at least I know that three of us can. Uh, watching Wuhan go on lockdown and being like, whoa, they just put like a city of 10 million people on lockdown. So that's when I was buying my masks, right? I was like, this is getting a little crazy. But most people were like, oh, whatever, it's over in China. Um, And I think that people like Kyle Bass, who who you had on the show recently, are helpful in explaining this. But like, there is no over there anymore. It's all connected, right? Especially as uh, America's supply chains and uh, employment base are so connected with what's happening in these other countries. So it's kind of like a riff on that MLK quote, but you know, um, uh, you know, that like an injustice anywhere is, is an injustice that we all need to, to worry about. Right. Um, and it, and it just becomes so clear with these examples of China and Iran. So it kind of goes to the work that we do at the human rights foundation, which is, you know, we're, we're working on promoting civil liberties and freedoms in, inside closed regimes around the world. And this highlights the importance of what we're doing. Uh, because really like dictatorships anywhere are a threat to open societies anywhere. Yeah. And now they're weaponizing their, their lack of willingness to be forthright against the countries that are now suffering. So China is probably over the hump of its peak of, uh, of infections. And now it's turning to the rest of the world with like acting like a humanitarian regime. Like, let us help you. Let us help you. We'll send so much propaganda. So much right. propaganda. So first of all, yeah, like, so first of all, you have the idea that China at the beginning and the World Health Organization were basically saying it was racist to have travel restrictions on Chinese people in January, February. Now, you know, once, once, once sort of like, you know, there's that meme where it's a WhatsApp group and it's like China created the group, uh, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And then China invited uh, Italy, China invites Iran, China invites the United States, China invites Europe, China leaves the group. So, you know, they're, they're, they've kind of like spread this disease out uh, you know, 
arguably in many ways um, because of decision-making within the communist party. And now that they've realized that, you know, maybe they're over the hump, now they're closing it down. So they basically are, they're restricting travel from everybody else. So each major carrier gets only like one flight a day into China now. It's like basically impossible to go there. So they're total hypocrites. And they're combining this with a, a narrative that un unfortunately works so well, so well. So the narrative is twofold. Inside China, they're promoting to the Chinese people that this was an American bioweapon. And this is, be this is taken very seriously. There's a guy named Paul Moser, who, who I recommend every, all the freaks follow on Twitter. He's, he was the New York Times um, tech correspondent in, in China for the last like almost 15 years. So he's the one who, who was like really sounding the alarm on like when WeChat was first being created, like what it meant and how, how all this surveillance tech was, was evolving. He just got thrown out of China. But he was saying that among his friends, he was sharing this on Twitter, that he just sort of estimated among like well-educated people that he knew in China that half of them believe now that this was an American bioweapon. So their propaganda is really effective inside of China. Outside of China, in Europe and the United States, they're trying to go with the like humanitarian narrative. They're trying to say, oh, look how generous China's being. So China's like airlifting like masks and things like that throughout Europe. Um, and other dictatorships are getting in on the action too. You're even seeing Cuba doing it. Uh, the crazy part is it's all a very wise propaganda investment. It doesn't cost them that much to do these things. And it wins huge because the international media is so gullible. So they're willing to be like, oh, look, China's like helping Italy or Spain. Meanwhile, what, what did we find out this week? That a huge percentage of that equipment is bunk or doesn't even work, right? So it's, it's all part of a grand scheme to kind of like fool the world into thinking that the, the Chinese government was the one that's handling this the right way and is the one that we should follow. Uh, and what makes it more difficult is that most of the world's democracies have been totally incompetent, right? No, totally. And I think this totally. is a good point because the narrative, the narrative, a lot of the narrative in the mainstream media, the dumb mainstream media here in the West is don't think this way, that's racist. So I think this is a good point of this episode to, mm -hmm. uh, to de-alienate between the Chinese people and the CCP. We're not being racist totally. against Chinese nationality or we, we are against the Chinese Communist Party here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, the CCP is the one who covered up the outbreak and triggered this thing. And I personally believe more people have died in China than anywhere else from this. So this thing has hurt Chinese communities more than more than anyone. Um, but if we actually start to look at um, some of the reactions of other states, it brings it, it brings in, it brings up some nuanced and, and complicated and controversial things. So like, what do we do, right? So how, how do we fight this thing? Um, I think there's some obvious things that, that maybe, maybe the freaks would agree are, are good or bad or whatever. So we can go through kind of some of these. Um, so what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to list off uh, a bunch of things. I want to get, I want to get you guys, I want to get a thumbs up or thumbs down from Marty and Matt on, <clears throat> on a bunch of different things that we think society should do to prevent pandemics so what about hand washing thumbs up or thumbs down that's thumbs a thumbs up. up all right all right so we got hand washing what about masks i'm not talking about forced wearing of them but like as a general idea all right masks are cool bonus masks fluster uh, facial recognition so we like that here right? I, I just want to say that i don't think it's a coincidence that the only measure to the the only part of all the measures that help fighting this virus that they're not recommending is the one that helps our privacy. Yeah. All the other ones hurt our privacy, and those are the ones they're recommending. 
This is a great point. And, you know, some people may say that like just between masks and hand washing, that's like 75% of how, of how to fight this thing. Right. Um, or at least a huge chunk. All right. What about testing? Lots of testing, having testing available to people if they need it. All right. That seems obvious. All right. What about, this is interesting. What about temperature checks? Like for example, like if you guys went to pick up some food um, next month, like if a new protocol for the public safety of your town or city was that like the chefs and the people on the lot coat line cooks and the delivery people had to take, to, had to take their temperature. How do you guys feel about that? The, I'm in the middle there. Yeah. The, middle. the testing and the temperature stuff, it becomes, it depends on how everything else falls in line with it. Because if mm-hmm. you have to protect privacy at the same time, you can't, you can't force testing and you can't, um, you can't then, you know, like we see in South Korea where they dox everyone's information out in public. Oh, that's right. We'll, we'll get to that. What I'm talking about is, so where I guess where I'll draw the line is like, I'm okay with live temperature checks. I don't want temperatures taken off of biometrics and wearables and whatever the chip when we have it. Right. So that's oh, kind of how I would draw the line, but no, chip. <clears throat> but temperature seems to be, yeah, we're, we're, we're anti-chip. Um, so what about this? What if you're a free country or a sit? What about your Citadel, Matt? So you got your Citadel. Someone's coming in from the outside. Um, are, are you going to ask them to quarantine for a few days? Like, is that cool? Is that reasonable? Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. So would you just say, screw the, screw the nuance with the phone. Here's your bracelet, wear this for 14 days and then take it off. Or how would you, how would you enforce your 14 day quarantine? Would you take them at the word least privacy intrusive? Would you ask them to install a phone app and do geofencing, which is what Taiwan is doing, right? Or would you just be like, here's where this freaking bracelet and we'll take it off in 14 days. How would you enforce your quarantine? Well, it depends if it's a citizen or not, right? Because no, say it, it's it, like your friend who came in to hang out with you. Like you want him to like I chill th- out and, and distance for 14 days. I think if it's a citizen, then, then no. But I think so, if it's... If it's someone that's not a resident, that's, you know, a, a foreigner, you know, doesn't mm-hmm. live in my citadel and they're uh-huh. coming here for refuge or for trade or uh-huh. something, then yep. they should have extra precautions put against them. Right. I guess oh. I'm just saying the whole like phone app thing is such a, it's, it's it just, we should just do away with that. Like if you're going to actually come out and say you want to like quarantine someone and, and monitor them, say it, say you want them to have a bracelet, you know, and then. And then be done with the whole like nuanced like confusion here. The bracelet's bracelet one step away no from the chip. The bracelet's one step away from the chip. It's not planted in you. I want to hear what Marty has to say well, about this. Well, I'm just thinking about my own situation. Like I <laughs> sought refuge in New Jersey from New York, yep. and people are start people are starting to freak out right now. Uh, there's like license plate shaming going down where I am, uh, and like I could see if people were allowed to have their way down here, they'd probably try to make me download. Well, let's just put it this way. Let's say New Jersey said this. All right, Marty, you want to come into Jersey? You got to wear this thing or download this app for 14 days. After that, you should take off. You could take it off. No, I want to whatever. I say no, because I honestly, I, I have been quarantined up to, I'm up to like day 20 right now. And I was able to do that by myself. I, I can't speak for anybody else, but I just know me personally. Like, why? All right. So we're going to say that app? no to <clears throat> no geofencing and no <clears throat> no bracelets. Marty's at a home that that his family owns, right? He's true. There's a direct. That that's what I'm saying. It's different if it's you know a flood of New Yorkers coming in and staying in like Airbnbs or something like that. 
Also, do you want to explain to the freaks what geofencing is, Matt? You, so they, they know. Well, it's like, so you have a phone app, you set location parameters, and if they go outside those location parameters. The cops come. Yeah. yeah. So look, I'm, all I'm saying is that like, hey, maybe a democracy would want to enforce something like this. I'm not entirely sure that that's unreasonable. Um, so I'm going to put that one in the question mark. Like, I like it just depends. Like, I obviously, if you look, if you're if you're a sing, if you're a city state that's a free country, you have no positives. You're going to want some immigration restrictions. That's like, what I'm, I'm sorry. But like, for your citizens, you should not be forcing uh-huh. your citizens in a pod. No, Very, I'm, saying, I'm saying foreigners, foreigners, foreign okay. visitors. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm cool with that. Yeah, it's already- well, it seems like a question. It seems like a, a, a blurry area. What about what about old school contact tracing? So, oh, Matt, you're positive. Can you can you I mean, can you think of who you were in touch with this week? Can we quickly call them and warn them? Do you feel like that's reasonable to do? Yes, I, I definitely think it's reasonable to do. Matt, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's voluntary disclosure. Yeah, yeah. Voluntary, non-technological. You're not looking through my phone tracing. to see. Correct. Stay at home if possible. How do you guys feel about that? I mean, it depends what your job is. I said if possible. So yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Well, now, my um, only issue with the stay at home thing is I, I'm still pissed off that they're not recommending people cover their face if they have to go out. Like, if you're gonna go, if you're gonna go full tilt and tell us to stay at home, then you should at least do the bare minimum and say people should cover their fucking face. Yeah, so they're starting to do that in Hong Kong and Taiwan. Like, if you go out, you have to wear a mask. Um, what about the restriction of, like, big gatherings? Now, here's where we come into the, the friction between religious liberty and, and common sense. Where do you stand on, like, I mean, would it be up to the pastor or the imam or the rabbi? Or who do you think makes the call here? That's a very tough one. I don't like de Blasio threatening to shut them down if they do do it, but I do think they should not do it. The, the city of Seoul is has a lawsuit currently against the, the Shinojichi sect. So the 61-year-old woman was part of this, mm-hmm. whatever, I'll call it a cult. It's probably not fair, but we'll call it yeah, a cult that's a cult. Um, <laughs> well, a lot of things could be cults. But um, she was like in their Wuhan chapter, and she flew home to South Korea to Daegu like in January, and she was the one who went to this 4,500-person ceremony or service, and she was the super spreader. And that's one of the main reasons South Korea has so many cases right now is this one woman. So the city of Seoul has now sued this uh, organization. Um, do you feel like that's, is that something you want to see? I mean, you saw the, the what was it? The pastor in Florida got arrested yesterday or something, right? Yeah. But then you also see like the oldest Catholic church, I believe in Jerusalem, where they believe like Jesus was hung. They shut their doors for the first time since the Spanish flu, I believe. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, I'm not, but, I'm not, trying and that's, to live I mean, that. no, and this is, this is why New York, Brooklyn has a huge outbreak specifically is the Hasidics yeah. uh, have not dispersed. I'm going to, I'm going to side on common sense on this one and just say that, like, I, I think it's okay for local and federal governments to, to, uh, to issue like restrictions of public gatherings, but um, I agree that there. that's controversial. I agree but what about protests? That's, that's the tricky one. So in Hong Kong, it appears that the protesters are still protesting with masks. Less Um, so. Less so. Less so. And of course, that's one of the conspiracy theories out there, which we should certainly mention, uh, that a lot of people that are, I think, pretty legitimate people 
actually believe is that this thing was a bioweapon made by the Chinese to um, to sort of end the Hong Kong protests. Well, I'll once say and for all, I'll say one thing. Uh, if you asked me in November if there was a clean way for the CCP to get out of Hong Kong, I would say uh-huh. it's impossible. They've dug themselves a hole. No one's going to back down. It's going to be messy as fuck. And now mm-hmm. it just it seems like it's a very clean way. Well, I'll leave that in the conspiracy theory drawer for now, but uh, it's certainly something that really affects people's ability to protest. Uh, It's very, very difficult too. So um, in general, I think that um, restricting gatherings is okay, but uh, man, that's a tough one. But what about, no, no, what about lockdowns? But one sec, but then we go back to our earlier conversation, which is trusting Uh the numbers that the governments report in the first place. Uh-huh. So maybe this time it's fine. You know, it, I, I think that the coronavirus is a real threat. I don't think this is like a hoax crisis. I think this is a real right. crisis. But once you set that precedent, right, a hoax crisis could happen that stops protests, makes well, it automatic criminal to be, a, to be a protester, basically, right? You, set, you so, do set that precedent. So, so here's, what, here's why I, would, I think it's helpful to differentiate between... Uh, restrictions of gatherings and enforced lockdowns. So restrictions of gatherings is one thing, but so the country, the government of Sierra Leone had no cases last week and declared a national state of emergency and, you know, seized all these different powers. So that's where I think that's the reason I think like lockdowns, quote unquote, are obviously undemocratic and probably not really desirable. I mean, I think, so look, look in the Bay area, you have, um, I mean, people call it a lockdown, but it's very different from the lockdown in Wuhan, right? I mean, the lockdown in Wuhan, you had to you had to like have permission to leave your building. I can leave my house right now and go on a jog and pretty much go anywhere. They don't have checkpoints on the highways. But what you know? about someone like Paris? Paris has has right. a pretty so strong different, lockdown right there's now. There's different kinds. I think what the Bay Area has done is reasonable. Um, I think it's obviously really unfortunate and terrible. We can get into the economic aspect later. But you know, non-essential businesses are are on are, are closed, and maybe maybe that's to be debated. But I do think the way the Bay Area has done it, generally speaking, has been has been pretty good, and that's been borne out by the numbers. Like we don't have like a fear right now, at least talking to folks in the hospitals around here, that there's going to be this death rush that just doesn't really seem to be happening. And yeah, they handled well- it in a way where. Look, we have you know technically like again, I can go out, I can go to the store, I can go shopping. Um, like a lot of things are closed, but like, I'm not going to get questioned for being outside. I can do what I want. And I feel at this point, me personally, that like I'm protecting myself at this point. So I feel like this, if you're going to do a quote unquote lockdown, I think it can be done in a way that's, that's more minimal. I think the way that it's being done in Italy and Paris and, and Wuhan obviously is too much. I mean, you can't be like jailing people inside their own homes, right? No, I agree. And I think this really touches into the the negative externalities that that come from a lockdown, right? Yeah, like how how many people are going to go psychotic from this and go mad? How many people are not getting paychecks and like just thinking about that while they're locked down? Fresh air is important. Yeah, I I believe it was Burma. They had I think like fifteen cases or excuse me like fifty cases, one death. Uh, but there are two deaths attributed to the coronavirus the police beat a man to death who was outside of his lockdown um, so so we've covered some things that are like uh obviously we should do like hand washing masks social distancing uh lots of testing we've covered some things that are very debatable uh like lockdowns and restrictions of gatherings and geofencing what about the things that are obviously 
uh, obviously not acceptable in any circumstance. So for me, I have four. I have cell phone tracking, financial surveillance, more surveillance cameras installed in public places, and public doxing of positives. How do you guys feel about those four? Agree across the board. Yeah, I think we what the South across. Korean government is doing is insane. I mean, literally, if you test positive, they're putting your last name, your general neighborhood where you live, not your address, but like near where you live, plus your birth date and a whole bunch of other stuff on a website, public website that people can look at. And then they'll text you saying, hey, that person was near you yesterday. And what it's leading to is like social stigma. So some of these people operate small businesses and they're getting crushed because of this. And, and a lot of it may even be based on inaccurate data. And who's going to get so tested? To me. Who's going to get tested if that's what happens? You stay home and you don't get tested. That's yeah, and, and I think, like, it may be easy for us to, like, and the freaks to understand, like, why financial well, then you get on, is stupid. Well, then you get on the not tested list. And is that a good list to be on? But the public doxing True. is outrageous. But look, the cell phone tracking is, I think, where I want to end this and where I want to spend a little time talking about this because you're seeing a lot of folks online, and I've been chatting with Matt about this, but and others, but like, there's a lot of like people who are saying, look, let's make a way to do cell phone tracking that doesn't violate privacy. There's a ton of these people out Impossible. there. Yeah, and they, they're like, they don't understand that like, you cannot anonymize location data. Matt, do you wanna, do you wanna color that in for people? They know where you work and where possible? you live. That's it. They know everything or to like, identify you. There's no oh, way to anonymize dot, it. This little dot went to this home every day for the last week. I wonder who that little dot is. Yeah, um, wasn't the um, the New York Times article series that came out, I believe, in November or October, November, that was able to track well, some t- Department of Defense members from the the climate crisis. Secret March Service, I think, right? Too. Yeah, I've yeah. done. I'm, I'm prepping for an event that I'll tell you guys about later, but I'm, I'm doing a lot of research into this right now. And, and there's kind of two camps. There's one camp that's just like what the Israeli government is doing, which is just like, oh, we're just going to take everybody's cell phone data. You guys could deal with it later. Then there's a camp that's like what the MIT folks are trying to develop <clears throat> and what um, the uh, folks at uh, in Singapore are doing, which is like, we will like encourage you to download an app that uses Bluetooth to like, you know, uh, tell, uh, t- tell you whether you've been in touch with anybody. And I feel, again, this is like, this has problems, not only because it seems impossible to anonymize this data set, but also how are you going to bootstrap the thing? And it's not helpful if like only three people have downloaded the app, right? You kind of need everybody to have the app, right? I would imagine. Yes. I mean, Matt, what do you think about the, the whole Bluetooth? The Bluetooth's a little bit apps? better because you can kind of do it. It is a little bit You better. can kind of do it a little bit more privately. Um, your phone basically knows what other phones it's been in proximity of. Um, but obviously, there's major privacy implications there. And, and like you said, you need a critical mass to actually buy into the um, buy into it. So. And like people shouldn't be walking around with open Bluetooth connections just in general, but that's uh, another story. Yeah, and it, it's given rise to this really bizarre thing that I've seen numerous companies say, and it's like, look, you donate your blood. Um, why don't you donate your data? How do you feel about this idea? <laughs> Literally, that's what they say. It's I'll, a false equivalency. It doesn't make any sense. We're going to get peer pressured into the chip. We're going to get peer pressured into the chip. Here's the the quote from a German company. Um, People give their stem cells for patients that need a stem cell transplant. They give their blood, he says. We hope that people think about the crisis and are willing to give their data. Well, that's... 
I'm sorry. Are you going to keep going there? No, that's it. That's the quote. Uh, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, Bitcoiners say this a lot. Like, analogies are a terrible way to make arguments. And this is what this is. Just like well, a terrible... I love analogies. Um, yeah. I know well, you love them. But, but they're not the great thing. for arguments. Where I'm worried about this is we all know this is a slippery slope. Yeah. And so, it doesn't get rolled back. That's the key. It's not going to get rolled that. back. It's not just the crisis. Well, not only that, but I mean, look, we know we all know where this ends, and and there's been some wonderful videos coming out from you know foreigners who are still in China right now, stuck there, who are taping what's happening, and it's like you gotta like scan your phone now when you're emerging from lockdown in Wuhan, and you ha- if you don't have the right status on your phone, you can't get on the bus, you can't use public transit, you can't buy stuff, so if you're they're you're green, yellow, or red, right? So if you're red, you're like totally screwed. But even if you're yellow, you're limited. And if you're green, you're like, it's almost like you are um, a prized commodity because you can actually go places. It's causing a crazy social stratification thing. And the wild thing is there's a video of like a, there's some British uh, uh, business guy who, who happens to be in China right now. And he made a little video which went viral a few days ago, which, which I thought was really good. And he's, he's talking to a Chinese person who's green on her phone, but he's yellow. And they're in the same room, like he's spitting distance away from her and they're not wearing masks. And it's like his yellow is not affecting her green. The whole thing is so stupid. Um, And it's really just an excuse to continue to like track and color code people, right? And to basically give them these like citizen scores. So this is why I would say generally speaking, I'm not a fan of any kind of cell phone tracking at all, even if it is done with privacy quote-unquote in mind do you know what i'm saying you end up you end up with like a stanford prisoner experiment kind of situation where the people that it benefits or it probably ends up being the majority and those majority go along with whatever authoritarian government is there to to push the system because it benefits them they're like a vip in the system yeah and in, you know look in europe in germany italy austria um, the mobile carriers themselves, and this happens in Taiwan too, you know, they're sharing cell phone location data with health officials and they claim it in an anonymized format. But as we know that that's not, it's not, it's not possible. Like you, you can, you can easily de-anonymize folks based on their data, but this is what we're up against. Even in the UK on the 19th of March, the national, the NHS that it was developing a, you know, digital tracing app. So all these governments are, even in our own country, I mean, we haven't seen any evidence yet that the central government is, has implemented anything, but it looks like from like Wall Street Journal reporting that um, the government's using like uh, mobile advertising data to start to look at like where people are. So well, you're seeing the like, um, the Overton window on privacy is changing is what I want to say. So like before COVID, people still were like uneasy with this sort of surveillance on the phones, thanks to things like Snowden, right? But today, you're seeing people basically give up on all of their hesitancy and say, fuck it, let's just, you know, let's just burn it all down. Like, screw privacy. We want people to be safe. So you're seeing the Overton window, much like the Overton window is changing for things like UBI and, you know, the Treasury minting money by itself and scrapping the Fed's independence and all these other things. You're seeing the Overton window shift on privacy in a super alarming way. So this is why we need to be like really loud about the fact that. We don't need a police state to fight the virus. And it just needs to be like repeated over and over and over again. Well, like we were saying, it's a combination 
or we said it on Twitter, I don't know if we said it in this podcast yet, it's a combination of the reaction to 9-11 and the financial crisis of 2008. Yeah. And so the, CARE, the CARES Act, it got through. Didn't it get through? It mandates that the CDC has to create a tracking app within 30 days or 60 right. days. Right, so it'll probably like look that. like what the NHS is doing or who knows? Maybe there'll be a mix of what the Israelis are doing and the Koreans are doing and the Taiwanese are doing. But you know, the sad fact is there doesn't really appear to be a country, at least, that 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 is not doing any of this. Now, the interesting thing is is what I would what I would say could be the model is actually California. I don't know what the government of California is doing right now. I don't know what kind of surveillance is, is happening. Um, I haven't seen anything. I, I, I'm hoping that they haven't done any digital contact tracing here. I'm, I'm not sure. But if if San Francisco Bay Area, for example, three million people, if we successfully flatten the curve here and don't have a big outbreak and don't have a ton of deaths, and we do that without violating privacy, that would be amazing. So, I mean, I'm just trying to watch things here carefully. So maybe the Bay Area can actually be a model for the world and can literally prove to people that you don't, again, you don't need mass surveillance uh, to fight the virus. You know, we don't need to change our expectations or traditions. We don't need to move the Overton window here. Um, That's my hope. No, I think it, it's also important to drive home the logical inconsistency of depending on the government and the institutions below it to solve this problem when they didn't even see it coming and their initial reactions were terrible. Like it's, they're not going to solve it for you. And I, you have it on the list here, build communities, be kind, like actually like talk to your neighbors and, and, and just not socially shame to the point where you, you run after people, but if you yeah. see people in large groups, you can just and be just, like, Hey, just- c- come on. Be careful about what what the spooks are saying. So, you know, this was a Wall Street Journal op-ed written by someone who's a VP at InQtel, which is like, you know, the VC for the defense industry, right? And then this person used to work at the NSC, National Security Council. So she says that she she she's like, she's claiming that she's a privacy advocate, right? So she's writing this op-ed as a quote unquote privacy advocate. She says, she says, what we need is a contact tracing app that Americans would voluntarily download. After a user provided consent, each phone would generate an anonymous ID number. When app users are in proximity, the numbers would be exchanged via Bluetooth and stored for quote unquote, a limited time. When an individual who signed up for the app test positive for COVID, the app would send a notification to alert other users who'd been near them recently. They would then know to begin self-quarantine, monitor for symptoms and seek testing. In this social compact, the more who participate, the greater that benefits the community. So they're basically selling surveillance as a community benefit these days. So just be careful, be careful. Yeah, I mean, we like, we talk about this with, with the ring technology, basically, sending all their data to the local police stations is just that taken to another limit um yeah but again like people are crying for it right now the fear the fear is really really something to behold like how people will just give up this stuff with fear and that's that's where we've been talking about this matt and i and other people have been on this podcast last few weeks like Mm -hmm. it's totally nuanced this is definitely a disease that's spreading we should be worried about but like the media is making it seem much worse than it is and really driving home fear as everybody's stuck in their house for a couple of weeks and they're all just watching TV and getting more and more scared and freaking them, themselves out. Like we need people to have clear eyes, take a couple deep breaths and say, hey, this is pretty heavy, but we're going to get through this and let's react appropriately. Yeah. And if you get suckered in, just remember, where does this slippery slope end of, of you know, 
getting more comfortable with sharing your private data. It ends with green, yellow, red. It ends with the color coding of you. It ends with the social stratification and the citizen score. So just be careful. But I guess to be more optimistic, you know, what do we do? What lessons do we draw? Um, so I've been trying to think about three main things that people can do. Like what are practical things people can do? So you can, you can rely more heavily on encryption, right? You can preserve your private communications. You can use tools like Signal, number one. Number two, you can get more involved with Bitcoin. Use Bitcoin. Store your wealth with Bitcoin, number two. And number three, you can be kind to one another and you can focus on your local communities. So this is kind of like my guiding uh, advice right now to folks as far as like they're freaking out. They don't know what to do. They're worried. The walls are closing in. Well, if you kind of like refocus on encryption, Bitcoin and kindness, I think it can help us get us through this mess. Yeah. And I think we are actually are seeing that you're not seeing it in the media, but just, again, I've said this, told this story a couple times on this podcast, but my in-laws, my parents, just seeing how their communities are reacting. Everybody's looking after each other. The younger couples are going to the grocery store for the older couples. They're standing outside on their porches at 5 p.m. every day to do a little check on everybody to socially distance. And that's the other thing. Socially distancing is like a bad Orwellian term. It should be physical distancing. It's like socially distancing yeah. like, uh, is like a, is a, a weird a weird framing where you should like, just like avoid people and, and, and just listen to us. We'll tell you what to do. Um, but yeah, no, I think we are seeing examples of communities actually being kind to each other and looking after each other. We're just not seeing it on the news per se. So when it comes to, um, the economic angle of this thing, um, and Bitcoin, I thought Nick Carter said something that, that really resonated uh, with me recently when he basically said, look, we don't know if, in the near term, we're going to actually see, you know, high uh, inflation in the United States. It's very possible that we'll start seeing uh, uh, prices of goods go up as assets devalue and go down. This is personally what I think is going to happen even as soon as this year. But we don't even need to have that situation to start to understand why Bitcoin is so important. What he basically said is that it's a protest against the sort of Cantillon bailout idea, which is what we're really fighting against, right? Is this idea that like the people who make the money can make the money spigot flow in a way where the people who are closest to the top benefit the most. And that's the, that's the piece that needs to be like broken and shattered. That's like the wheel that needs to be broken. And that's kind of what I've focused my thinking on because honestly, this narrative that, uh, Oh, the fed's going to, or the treasury is going to print a bunch of money and it's going to inflate the dollar. That's not necessarily going to happen in the near future simply because the rest of the world is even worse than us. And they're going to all want dollars and there's other, other factors there, but like you may not see prices rise in the in the next few months, but it doesn't mean that Bitcoin's not valuable. I, I think that the, the the arguably the most important thing to think about now is that it, it creates a different financial system where, you know, the, the the money itself cannot be produced in a way that is siphoned off to, uh, you know, an, an elite group, right? I mean, I yeah, and it's. I would also add that, I mean, I think this whole crisis is going to accelerate the move to restrict cash usage uh, worldwide. Um, mm -hmm. So when you add that into the mix, um, and cash is obviously the, 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 the main way people are able to make private purchases without exposing all their purchase history. Um, if, if that happens, and I think it was going to happen regardless, and I think with the crisis it got accelerated, then you're going to need a private money 
Um, otherwise, all of our purchases are going to be tracked for perpetuity. So um, I think to help people understand like what a worst case scenario could look like, you guys have discussed uh, this book, The Mandibles, on the show before. I think with American Hoddle, right? You guys talked about it a little bit. Um, I would definitely recommend everybody read it. It's a really amazing, funny book. But it basically describes how hyperinflation would happen in the United States. And without giving too much away, the general idea is that we have a president who decides to default on our, our debt. Um, and there's been a conspiracy with other governments to create like a new world standard currency. And it gets sort of adopted and therefore everybody flees from dollar from, from dollars and from treasuries and things like that. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, it shows the life of people who live in Brooklyn as prices skyrocket and as like a Venezuelan scenario happens. And the funny part is the mainstream Paul Krugman type economists are in the story and they're in denial at the beginning because they're all saying that like, no, we can save the system if we do X, Y, and Z. And then that those characters become uh, obviously completely demoralized and defeated throughout the story as the dollar like just inevitably becomes almost worthless, right? But what I wanted to discuss here was the role of gold because you know, I know you had Roy on the other day, and I think it stands to reason that um, gold will, will will become increasingly valuable. I mean, look, it's gone from 300 bucks to 1600 bucks, right, since the year 2000. So the thing with gold, though, and you really learn, you really think about this as you read the mandibles is you got some gold in your house. Yeah, there's going to be some like jackbooted thugs who come and take it from you, right? So this idea that you know, a, a large amount, a, a amount of gold that you could actually put your family's value in is going to be a, little, a large physical space. that's going to be hard to move around. It's going to be a real limitation for a lot of people. And the idea that you can't move it from one country to another, it starts to get comic in the idea of like, you know, how worth, how, how usable is this thing? So I just think like, if you actually think about the events of the mandibles, things would be so different had they had Bitcoin. And the crazy part is like, we don't have to live the events of the mandibles. We have our own world where we have Bitcoin. Um, we don't have to live in that world where there is no way to, you know, teleport your your assets um, in a way that's uh, confiscation resistant and censorship resistant. We actually have that tool. So it'll be really interesting to see how this unfolds here. Um, but I am pretty hopeful and optimistic that we don't have to go down that road so much and that, that it is a po it is possible for anybody, regardless of whether they have even a passport or an ID to put their time and energy into an asset that can be moved permissionlessly anywhere um, and can be stored and, and transferred in a way that's very hard to censor and very hard to confiscate. So just massive bonus for the human race as we enter these traumatic times. No, it's, it's it goes without saying like it is crazy how how much and that's another thing too that we've been talking about as well is the the accumulation of gold by governments like china and russia and it seems like they've been posturing over the last two decades uh specifically like they Dude, are they're stacking gold bars man if you look at that yeah. list of you look at how much gold america has i mean oh my god we have so much gold it's wild and yeah. you know what i mean it's kind of funny because we make fun of the government for making all these short-term time decisions short-term sort of time preference things. Well, you know what? Stacking like the most gold in the world is a pretty nice uh, long-term time preference uh, decision by the U.S. government. Um, so they're just, they're just keeping it in there, man. But yeah, as we're seeing will... now, as the conversation you had with Roy suggests, how do we trust the fact that governments even say, have the amount of gold they say they have? A lot of this stuff could be rehypothecated, et cetera. You can't verify it like you can with Bitcoin, right? So we'll have to see. A lot of that might be a house of cards scenario. 
I mean, that's it's one of the big conspiracy theories out there. Is the Golden Fort Knox? Is it in the basement below the New York Fed? It's a cardboard box. It. Yeah, yeah. And it's, so we'll uh, see. I mean, how much have they been selling off to float to keep things afloat? I mean, it's a it's a very good question. I mean, and that's the that's the crazy that's, that's the other beauty of Bitcoin, right? It can be audited. You can audit it with your node if you have your keys in your possession. Like you know that you have that, and uh, it is. It is infinitely better than gold, in my. So, what opinion. do you guys think? What do you guys think thirty to forty percent unemployment looks like in the year twenty twenty? It's very different from the year nineteen thirty five. But what do you think it actually looks like in the next six to twelve months? What do you think is going to happen? <sighs> I, I assume you don't ascribe to the idea that this is going to be a V shaped recovery. No, no, I, um, I don't know, man. It's very, you, you, I mean, so you have unemployment coupled with the the boomer retirement happening at the same time as their retirement funds where's implode. my pension baby so you, uh, wait I don't want, wait did my pension wait my pension invested in high risky high yield things because they needed to get to a particular quota oh maybe that was a bad idea yeah i mean and so where does it go i hope not civil unrest it's hard to see civil unrest not happening at least in some capacity i do hope the uh the avenues of communication which exist today help us sort of uh, communicate outside of the government and try to, like you said earlier, be kind, build community, and fix this from the ground up. I mean, dude, the but Mandibles has a scene where there's a refugee camp in Prospect Park. That's probably going to happen in the next six months, dude. Sorry to say. I mean, but, I don't, I personally, almost everybody I know is affected. There are people I know who are, who have COVID. There are people I know who, a lot of people have already been laid off who are as who are seeking these loans and are seeking different. I mean, this is like even just within my small social circle. So, I mean, it's things are getting. We've never seen this yeah. before. Matt, you're seeing the effects firsthand, right? Um, well, two things. First of all, um, I'm not sure if there'll be a refugee camp in Prospect Park, but if there is. I just want to highlight that I don't think San Francisco is going to be able to avoid this this bomb either. Uh, I think San Francisco. I think people overestimate how much of the issue is in New York. Um, maybe my bias is showing, but we have been testing really well here, um, and this thing spreads really easily. So, yeah. to, to I, without doxing myself, I don't live in San Francisco. I live in the Bay Area. So yeah, well, I think the Bay Area is going to get hit hard as well. But anyway, okay. Just investment real estate alone, fucked. Completely going to get wrecked. Mm -hmm. Absolutely wrecked. People aren't going to be able to pay their rents, whether that's retail or residential. We have full economic shutdown right now. And the, the, the knock-on effects of that are fucking unreal. You know? and, and there's two things that people have underestimated in terms of this crisis. Um, and they're both kind of similar. They're tangential. Um, the first thing is that healthy Americans have nothing to worry about. Most Americans are completely unhealthy, so that's complete bullshit. And then the second thing is as well. Exactly. That's the second thing. The second thing is most Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. And when you take away that paycheck, the ripple effects are absolutely unfathomable. I don't know where we go from here and you know, it it keep it keeps me up at night. We we shall see well, what happens, but I'll tell you one thing. The only thing that that gives me hope and gives me certainty is my bitcoin so to, to me the the value prop of bitcoin has never been more clear um and yeah i agree completely i mean 
Look, there's this video that I, I do encourage people to watch. Um, some Bitcoiners shared it with me. And the author of the video is discredited now for several reasons, but is Ray Dalio, actually. So uh, his fund seems to not be doing super hot right now. He, <laughs> he was very adamant that the dollar was going to become really weak and hasn't, et cetera, et cetera. But he does a very nice animation called How the Economic Machine Works, where he shows that like for governments... They really have four options during a, during a, not just a recession, but what he calls a deleveraging, which is like you know a depression basically. Three of the options are uh, deflationary, and one is inflationary. Um, <clears throat> so in the deflationary camp, they can raise taxes, uh, they can uh, do like debt restructuring, um, uh, and obviously they can cut spending. But obviously people don't like this, and this usually leads to protests and get regimes getting toppled. So what do they do? They they lean on the fourth option, which is printing more money. And he has this idea that oh, this th these things can be like in a beautiful balance. And he says there can be a beautiful deleveraging, which is like insane to me because it's never going to be beautiful. It's always going to be ugly. It's going to be so terrible. And he gets it, the video is wild at the end. The beautiful deleveraging. But he does. He has this interesting model where he says that okay, um, he thinks that there's like over time economies grow with productivity which i agree with over time but it's sort of a linear trend um so in the short term there's what like he has the short-term debt cycle and the long-term debt cycle so he has these in like these waves so he has the short-term debt cycle between five to eight years which obviously we've seen are are, are you know if you go back in time you can see this uh, pretty easily in america at least then he has the long-term debt cycle which he calls it takes every 75 to 100 years and, and he says, uh, in the short-term debt cycles, you see recessions and you see boom cycles, et cetera. But the long-term thing is the period of time between deleveragings. The thing is, and if you actually look at the stock market crash in 29 and the Great Depression, I don't necessarily think that 2008 was the deleveraging. I think it was the beginning of the deleveraging, but I think it got put on pause with, and it was, it was actually the federal government managed to hold it off for another decade. But I think we're, we're witnessing part of this. It's sort of the same thing that's happening now. They kicked the can. And I don't think it's a different phenomenon. They kicked the can down the road, but we're about to, we're, we're about to experience the real deleveraging is all I'm saying. And in that world, you're going to want to understand what Bitcoin is and, and be able to tell your family and friends about it. I mean, it's, it's at this point, it's, it's a pretty serious um, matter, I would say, that, that at least they should have the knowledge of what it is and, and how to get it. Um, yeah. And I'm grateful that we, we live in a world that, that has it. No, I completely agree. And you just look at the reactions from Henry Paulson, Tim Geithner, Ben Bernanke in 2008. They literally had that meeting over the weekend where they had to decide whether they're going to save the banks or not. And Henry Paulson was like, Hank Paulson was like, we don't do this. There's not going to be cash in the ATMs tomorrow. Like, well, the and, amount of leveraging that had to happen to save us from the great deleveraging in terms of if you look at these... You, I was showing you guys this thing with these uh, corporate bonds. Like Apple had none before 2008. Now they have like some astronomical amount. But like, like 200 some, billion some, or something like that. Yeah, some like 75% of all of these assets were created since the 2008 crisis. And just to kind of keep everything afloat along with stock buybacks and all these other things. So all these synthetic things have kind of kept us on life support. But we're going <clears> to <throat> eventually start to slide down that road. Yeah, but at least Apple has like a shit ton of cash reserves. They like manage their they manage their book better than most people, and most companies. I mean, like they one do, of, but one they're of, still gonna have layoffs. Yeah, one of the issues I see is like not only with with 
with investment real estate, not only like people think, you know, paycheck to paycheck, you think like the gig worker, right? You think the guy mm-hmm. who's, who's working for Uber as an Uber driver or something, but the people that are paycheck to paycheck are also the landlords because they, they are all waiting on their rent checks because they're highly leveraged up. Right. And it goes all the way down that that route is they're just all fucking, you know, hand to mouth. And that that's going to turn on us so hard. And right now, I feel like our government is treating this as like recovery spending. But we haven't even gotten through the crisis yet. Like right now, the whole focus should be on on solving this crisis, getting as many masks out as possible, getting as much testing out as possible and solving the root of the problem here instead of trying to just jump into recovery mode and they're just, they're shooting all their guns like prematurely. Yeah. And, um, it would be remiss uh, of us not to cover at least a little bit how incompetent the American administration, at least the white house has been throughout this whole thing in terms of joining the who at the hip in terms of lying to the people about different things and covering things up, et cetera. But you do have, the president now saying we should do $2 trillion of infrastructure spending, which may have been a good idea a year ago, actually. Um, you know, like, look, debt powers the world. Most money in the world is debt. Uh, it's just the reality, right? So would you rather take out debt to um, have a television set or a tractor that can actually help you be more productive? Like, there's a clear difference here. So rather than take out debt to prop up dead companies, we should have been taking out debt to actually make our infrastructure really good. I, I actually understand that. That makes sense. But to do it now seems like it's really going to break the back of, of, of the system. And the fact is, what's so crazy, if you, if you survey the top 10, 20 economists ranging from the Austrians all the way over to the MMTers, no one knows what's going to go down. Nobody knows. But my- Everybody's totally clueless. They don't know what's going to happen in the next six months. There's all these arguments between dollar bulls and dollar bears. And I mean, all the quote unquote experts have no idea what to expect. And the crazy part is very few of them understand Bitcoin. You know, they're just kind of like missing it. My point is the only infrastructure spending we should be talking about right now is building mask factories. Like what the fuck is going on? Like you have a bunch of people that are unemployed looking for work. We have a huge shortage of masks and he wants to do infrastructure spending. We have unlimited money. Okay, fine. 50 billion to the airlines should have shouldn't have gone to the airlines yeah, make, and make fucking mess to- <laughs> put the pe- people to work man and make some How about those drive through now they in south korea and again i know it was very critical of the way they use surveillance but they have these phone booth testing sites that are incredible how come we don't have those everywhere in our great country we did the drive through really least. pathetic the drive-through testing i was you need I was drive-through happy testing you need masks i mean i i can sympathize with the way that we as a country would need to mobilize in a statist way like in wartime for these things. I understand that I'm not a total anarchist, but um, the fact is we haven't been doing that. We've been mobilizing to save corrupt corrupt corporations is what we've been mobilizing to do. It's really, really frustrating. Um, And meanwhile, Marty, where we are. Meanwhile, Marty's not allowed to go on this beautiful empty beach outside of his fucking house because it's against the law for him to do that. Like that's, that's, that's the priorities. And the other priority they have is they've, they've increased the screening of packages coming into America and they're seizing KN95 masks that are over a thousand masks. That's their priority. Their priority is to step in there and enforce FDA regulations on fucking masks. The, the American government in, in, you know, it's been, it's federal system. So there's all different, different 
examples. I think California's done a lot better than other countries, but rather other, other states. But um, the fact is, where would you rather be right now, Florida or Singapore? Like, I'm sorry, I'd rather be in Singapore right now, uh, even the hardcore freedom advocate that, that I am. Like, so the, you're going to see some fallout. You're going to see a, a horrible effect, not only on our, the death toll of our country, but also uh, the economy. It's, it's not worth arguing about you know, whether or not X or Y or Z should be done, but we should prepare ourselves accordingly. Now, the thing is with Bitcoin, how do you guys contextualize the fact that I think a lot of Bitcoiners are waking up to the fact that even though we understand kind of what it gives us and the power it has and the tool it is and the revolution that it is, most people, most people still treat it as a speculative asset. So they're going to sell it in times of crisis. So its dollar value is going to go down when people need to sell to make margin calls and things like that. How, how are you, is that, are you guys well, readjusting your priors at all? Or, or is that something that's in line with what you've always believed? Well, to go back to your point about hyperinflation may not be coming, mm-hmm. uh, at least not very quickly. I mean, that's the thing. It's all confidence game, right? And I actually had a good conversation with Charles Marone from Strong Towns a few weeks ago, and he actually mm-hmm. brought up the Weimar Republic. And what we're actually doing now is very similar to what they did and how their hyperinflation started, where uh-huh. they had an ec- economic crisis. They did a bunch of infrastructure. I think it was maybe even the Spanish flu was had something to do with it. Um, they uh, they had to like they had to restoke the the economy and they're doing like infrastructure spending and, and printing money. And it just came out of nowhere, basically where you have the government and their central bank trying to fix things all at once. And so I could see that happening here. And then in terms of Bitcoin, I think maybe it's following a similar path that gold played in the 2008 crisis where initially uh, people sold off risk assets to cover margin and leverage but then it had a huge run like yeah. six to eight months after that started. And I think at some point, again, this is all confidence game. Like the, the, like you have the opportunity cost of, all right, if I dump my Bitcoin for these dollars that are about to hyperinflate, is it really even fucking worth it? So I think we may, yes, we did have a huge sell-off initially when this crisis started, but I, th- I think Bitcoin's held up relatively well since then, uh, mm-hmm. all things considered. Yeah, but I guess this brings us to the idea of like, um, who, like different different ownership different ownership groups, people who own Bitcoin, and and like the people who who are going to sell it to meet margin calls are not the the believers, right? They're not the people who are working well, on sometimes Bitcoin they are believe in it. Sometimes they are. They might need the sometimes cash. Like we can't buy things with Bitcoin yet. Like I I 100% agree with Marty. I think um, well two things. Like obviously no one in charge believes that they're leading to hyperinflation when they do it. Otherwise they, they probably would not do it because it does hurt them right. long term. Um, and even short to medium term, it hurts them. Um, so it does always catch you off guard, uh, historically speaking. And then the second thing is, is like, if you have a global free market asset that yeah. allows people worldwide to invest in it and take custody, then of course, in times of global turmoil and crisis, when people need real goods, um, it's going to go down in price. Like that's exactly what you should expect. If it was a manipulated market, it might not go down in price, and then you should you should question that. Like I think, if we have a global pandemic and you have full economic shutdown in the Western world, um, that asset that is that is supposed to be a global store of value that's permissionless is going to go down in price. Like that should be exactly what's expected. Um, but we all know this. this is a long term game. Yeah, and that's that's the key 
takeaway here is that you have to keep thinking about what is this asset going to look like in 10 years, 20 years. Um, and I think that unfortunately, some of the same people who are just viewing as a speculative investment, some of these institutional folks and many others, um, uh, you know, they're going to be the ones who, and they own a significant amount of Bitcoin, right? I mean, they're also going to be the ones who eventually push these like social attacks on Bitcoin, like they did three years ago, right? Four years ago. So they're going to be pushing these attacks of inflation and they're going to be blocking privacy tech. And we're going to have to respond accordingly and keep our eye on the, on the long term, right? Um, I mean, you know that the same people who pushed for uh, bigger blocks. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna come back at some point in the next couple of years. Um, probably push for inflation. They're gonna push for uh, a block to well, any sort of like meaningful privacy upgrades. Big, bigger uh, blocks. Bigger blocks was a direct threat to privacy because you totally because you couldn't and run your own decentralization notes. of the system. But I'm just saying, like they'll come. Like let's say, for example, that like people eventually figure out how to get confidential transactions on the main chain without. Uh, violating our full node's ability to audit the supply of the money. Like, and I know it's a little bit of a pie in the sky right now, but who knows, maybe in 10 years it's possible. They're going to block that. They're going to say, no, we don't want that because that's going to prevent our ability to have this as a legal asset in the United States. And th they have a lot of power. Um, so we need to mobilize accordingly for that fight when it happens. Same thing with inflation. So they're going to use all of their power to try and fight uh, the developers and others who, who don't want to change Bitcoin. But there's going to be more of these fights down the road. You know that, right? Well, I assume, yes, I'm preparing for that. But also, again, this is something I've been just like, I tweeted out like a month and a half ago, but I've been just retweeting every day. Is like nobody's priced in the crisis of confidence that's coming for these institutions. Like how, right. like will will we even trust the government at that point 10 years from now? Will it even look like it does now? Will their power be completely neutered? just because of people's reactions to how they reacted to this and how they fucked up everything so bad. Like, so I'm, that's one thing that I don't think people take into consideration enough is the fact that people just may completely lose confidence in these governments and these institutions. They look nothing like they do today. Like we, we are at an extreme and the pendulum's going to start swinging another way. I got, and I've said this too, I think we're going to see a huge balkanization of the world, not only mm -hmm. shutting, mm -hmm. not only bring the supply chains home, but maybe even California in 10 years, it's own state, Texas is its own nation state, East coast, it's own nation state. Like would not be surprised if that happens either. Citadel theory. Yeah. And I find myself, frustrated because you know i'm trying to over the last three years educate and inform people about bitcoin and you know the social attack that actually was the most effective uh to fight bitcoin and to prevent bitcoin's growth was not necessarily um the the new york agreement what, what well it wasn't necessarily the, the new york agreement or any of the big blocker stuff it was actually the 2014-15 promotion of blockchain not bitcoin um, this whole idea that like it's actually blockchain or cryptocurrency and not Bitcoin, this was devastatingly effective to the point where like when I go talk to the State Department or uh, philanthropy or any like reasonably smart organization on a different topic where they're like, you know, well regarded, even the UN, whatever, the USAID, etc. I've had conversations with all these people. I mean, their default position is that it's blockchain, not Bitcoin, even to this day. And that's, 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 you know, a five year window that we missed and where Bitcoin's ability to spread and 
ability to be something that people would get interested in learn about was delayed. And maybe you can say that that was a good thing because it kept it under the radar for longer and allowed it to develop and become more robust. But it was really like an amazing social attack on Bitcoin. And, you know, it, it wasn't like it was created by one person, but this whole blockchain, not Bitcoin thing was, I'm, I'm trying to write a long, long essay uh, or short book about this topic. And just digging into it is so crazy the way that it, <clears throat> it manifested 2014, 2015, 2016, um, and how still to this day, so many people believe it outside of, you know, Bitcoin Twitter or whatever, you walk into a boardroom or a humanitarian aid organization, they believe in blockchain today. It's crazy, but it's true. I mean, IBM continues to pound my timeline on Twitter with this advertisement of how they're like tracking farmers and my dad loves that advertisement. (laughs) He's like IBM. They know what they're talking about. It's IBM. Yeah, it's like, well, we know it's ridiculous, but the average person doesn't know that, But right? it takes um, time. They'll figure it out. I think this crisis is going to be a massive learning experience for tons of people, millions yeah. of people, billions of people that, that, whether through their own volition or not, have to touch the stove, whether or not someone else is holding their hand and touching the stove with it, which is a lot of the case for a lot of people, or if they're touching the stove themselves, they will learn over time. And it it will play itself out. I'm not I'm not too worried about it. And mm-hmm. and in terms of in terms of the traditional economy, in terms of where we stand there, you know, I have a little bit of homework for freaks. This is kind of painful homework in terms of what I might uh, give you in in terms mm-hmm. of uh, tales from the crypt episodes. But you should go tomorrow morning. You should watch CNBC. You should watch Kramer on CNBC, and tell me with a straight face after you watch that that any of this shit is priced in, and and we, and we can take it from there because none of this shit is priced in. He is, they're on a whole different level. He had Mnuchin on today. My dad watches it every morning. So I've been mm-hmm. watching it in Did quarantine and, and none of this shit is priced in. They're on cloud nine. They're on cloud fucking nine. They're on V shape recovery. Yeah. Q3. We're going to yeah. get back in action. That's what they think. And did you see Steve Leishman try to explain how the fed works? He says, ah, we don't print physical money anymore. It's just ones and zeros that we, 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 I think he literally said, uh, we, we just like bring them to fruition out of thin air. Um, so like they've completely lost the pot plot. And then going back to like, is Bitcoin, like, are people going to turn to Bitcoin again? Like Bitcoin was launched and like Dan Held says this, like when it was launched, it was perfect timing. And so like, yes, it, gra- it grabbed in enough people, enough cypherpunks who were looking for this digital cash. And at the time that was the perfect time to launch Bitcoin. Now, 11 years later, another crisis later, this is what I wrote on Monday, like the, the iron is hot, it's time to strike. Like this is the perfect environment in which to educate people about Bitcoin where they're going to be most receptive to outside ideas. Yeah, so I, I, think- I, I, I mean, I agree, but I just want to just warn and caution the freaks. Like you would think that, oh my God, infinite QE combined with, you know, the happening or whatever would, would, would create a massive uh, increase in the price of Bitcoin. But, you know, the, the average person is looking at Bitcoin and I'm getting a lot of texts from people over the last month, like making fun of me, basically being like, oh, what, what happened to Bitcoin? You know, I thought it was supposed to be a store of value. And I'm kind of like, hey, why don't you wait like 12 months for that text? You know, let's see, let's see what happens. You know, let's see what happens. Because I'm very, con- I'm like supremely confident in the medium to long term. Um, but People need to realize that this asset, as you said, Matt, is it's in a free market. There are no controls, um, and people are going to be selling it off to cover to cover expenses, basically at this point. And that will maybe even escalate. So just just you know, hodl. 
You know, I well, I've actually and, seen the opposite. So I, I really? you know, there is a price anchoring thing that happens mentally. So uh-huh. as far as a lot of the the people that that got in in 2017, they see Bitcoin as a twenty thousand dollar asset that's trading at six thousand dollars right now, mm-hmm. um, and they see it as a lot of them do see it as their time to buy right now. And I, <laughs> I've been getting a lot of texts like, "What well, are you oh, still yeah. bullish well, you on look Bitcoin? At the are you numbers? Are you still doing crazy, that? Right? And you could tell the text is a text like, Matt, I'm thinking about FOMOing into Bitcoin." I need you to confirm my bias. And then I send them a text back and confirm their bias. I'm like, I'm still all in. And then they, I I imagine then end up buying. Well, it's also just process of elimination. I've been, you know, you listen to all these macro traders and like people are interviewing them. Like, what do you have left? Like, what are, what are you, what are you holding? And they're kind of like gold, cash, Bitcoin. Like, like there's no, what else are they going to hold right now? Right. So I think also by process of elimination, you're going to see a lot of people, start to experiment with this asset. Um, I think the next year is going to be crazy and it's going to be an amazing time to be alive. Um, But, you know, again, we need to like fight for our values and principles or else, uh, you know, we may not like the world um, that that we're going to be living in. So now's the time to to fight. The difference of this top compared to last top is that this top had way more retail investment. You had tons of apps and stuff like that that allowed just regular people to get into these to into these equities at all time highs, right? And all those people are are kind of gotten wrecked a little bit, but they're about to get more wrecked, is what I expect, right? Yeah. And and so you ask are, yourself, what does the average person, where does the average person put their money? The average person can't get into treasury treasury bonds. They they can't they can't get into into put options on the S and P. They have they have no. no place to put their money. Where are they going to put their money? They're going to keep it in the bank and make no interest on it during inflationary times, or are they going to put it in Bitcoin? And I think Bitcoin is sitting right there, you know, right in front of them, waiting for them. Yeah, that's actually a very good. That's a very good point to drive home too, because the people, the institutions with all the money, they sort of don't want to dive into Bitcoin because of how illiquid it is and how small the market cap is because there'll be so much slippage to the upside on the price that they get in. So this is sort of like a Trojan horse way to allow mm-hmm. retailers to get in, start stacking sats a little bit at a time, and then eventually the institutions will have no uh, no alternative other than to dive into Bitcoin and gold. So they'll probably choose gold first because it's more liquid and has a bigger market cap, but slowly over time, as more retail investors have more access to Bitcoin, they just go to the cash app, buy, buy Bitcoin. They can't do that with gold. Like it will slowly increase Bitcoin's market cap as well. And then these institutions come in after. This could actually be what I hope like best case scenario happens is they're like somewhat of a smooth transition where, where more of the common man are able to participate, which, which I hope. I'm just glad nice. it's an option. In a world where our wants are going to be deflated, right? Like the real estate stocks, things that you want to have are going to be deflated and things that you need to have are going to be inflated in price, like the daily stuff you have to buy. In that kind of world, I think it's going to be such a treasure to have Bitcoin. And, you know, if this whole thing wasn't created, uh, we'd really be screwed. So I'm actually quite grateful that it exists. And I just hope we can spread the word as far as possible so that we can educate as many people as possible now, as opposed to when it's too late. I think one one of the interesting aspects here is, you know, you did mention that gold has has larger liquidity than Bitcoin. But in terms of non-custodial gold versus non-custodial Bitcoin, uh, in times of crises, 
uh, we see, and this is the Bitcoin's first real crisis. Um, true. Yeah, Bitcoin true. has 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 better real liquidity in terms of actually taking totally. ownership of your own asset. Oh, I mean, if you look at if you listen to Marty's pod with, with Roy, like you know, the a lot of the gold markets are pretty locked up, and they're giving excuses as to why they can't deliver it to you right now, as because it's in some other city or whatever. It's wild. That's a very good point. The emperor uh, has no clothes. Damn. Uh, let's end so, this on a more positive note because this is like the the thought of I'm very like nervous right now. Thought of civil unrest and people like I mean, and this could happen in the course of weeks or a couple months, just a couple yeah, months. Yeah, freaks. Of not don't be surprised rent. if stuff happens real fast. Like right now, all the economists are are saying it's not going to be so bad. We're going to recover. This thing's going to have permanent uh, effect on our lives and economically, things could things could happen really fast. If you actually go back and study. Uh, as Matt was saying, the Weimar Republic, if you study Hungary during the Cold War, if you study Zimbabwe, the, the inflation rates of these currencies, it, it, within 12 months, they, they go you know, to a million percent. It's, it's not like a decade-long thing. It, it, it is something that happens really quickly. And because it sneaks up on you is when you're caught with your pants down. This also happens in the mandibles. Everybody feels like they're safe with their assets, dollar-denominated assets in America, all the wealthy. And all of a sudden, they can't sell them, and their value, you know, goes away, and the markets lock up, and that that could easily happen. So, this is why we should be grateful and excited to have Bitcoin, to continue to be working on it, um, to continue to be able to live in a world where we still do have some privacy and technologies that allow us to communicate privately, as these alphabet soup organizations are trying to take it from us in you know in allegiance with the chinese government basically so one on the one hand you have the un and the who and the <clears throat> the itu and all these organizations plotting to take all your rights away well at least we can fight back and and focus locally and and hopefully emerge on on the other side uh, in, in a brighter place so it's a it's a privilege to be on this uh, journey with you fine gentlemen it is in honor as well. And hopefully the cypherpunks keep writing code. And one more thing to go back to that Roy episode and touch on hyperinflation too. Like it may have already happened. The fact that toilet paper has been hard to get shrinkflation exists. Like hyperinflation may be already started. We just haven't realized it yet. And this is the death row uh, slingshot that we're about to experience over the next few months to a year. But yes, I agree. Like to end this on an optimistic note, Bitcoin exists. It's not going anywhere. People are still working on it, still producing blocks. I can confirm that miners are still plugging in machines. Uh, things are happening, and, it, and hopefully, we we've never had a, f uh, a safety net like this in human history. Maybe we'll be surprised by how how quickly we're able to rebound because an asset like this exists. Like talking about how surprised we're about to be, maybe we get surprised to the positive side via Bitcoin. Um, can I shell something quickly? Sure. Yeah, so the Human Rights Foundation is organizing a conference we're announcing in the next couple of days on April 13 and 14 called COVIDCon, where we're going to have an amazing group of speakers ranging from uh, Melissa Chen to Kyle Bass to Naval Ravikant to Gary Kasparov to Ann Applebaum. And we're going to be diving into the authoritarian response to COVID and the attack on civil liberties in countries ranging from Hungary to China, et cetera. We're devoting an entire day to how the Chinese government covered this thing up and worked with the WHO. We have all kinds of famous Chinese dissidents and activists who are gonna be with us. Um, <clears throat> so I'll share more information, but stay tuned to the HRF Twitter handle and uh, 
uh, you can follow me at Gladstein and we can, we, we can share some good information with you, but it'll be something you might want to check out on April 13 and 14 COVID con. So I'm assuming that's a live stream. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be, uh, something you sign up for and, and you'll be able to live stream and ask questions of the speakers. If, um, so that'll be fun. If you hosted an actual but, conference, then the name would be a, uh, Great pun. You just you spread the virus at the conference. Um, it's the I'm philosophical ex- successor to Putin Khan, which we did uh, about four years ago. Well, I'm very excited for that. That Fuck yes, that sounds fucking awesome. So I'm looking forward to that. We uh, will definitely be shilling that on the pod as it as it on the lead up coming up to that. I, I mean, I just wanted to finish up just to say two things. I mean, Bitcoiners obviously give me hope. Bitcoin gives me hope. I'm, you know, that that part makes me really optimistic. I'm bullish on humanity. Uh, I'm bearish on governments mm-hmm. uh, in their current state. You know, I think we need more local governance. I think this crisis highlights that 100%. Um, and then the last thing I want to say is like we're in uncharted waters right now. Like no one knows what happens next, and that's the most important thing to take to take to heart and to act accordingly mm-hmm. based on that. Yes, and to piggyback on that, like with that in mind, that nobody knows what's going to happen next. Just try to fall back on fundamentals and what you can depend on moving forward. And, and again, I, I think this wholeheartedly Bitcoin provides a deep security that does not exist anywhere in the financial world right now. If people are still running nodes, plugging in miners, sending transactions, Bitcoin's going to keep working and you can depend on that unless the internet goes down. Uh, but if that happens, we, we have much bigger problems. So just the, the, the intense deep security that Bitcoin provides is where I'm finding safety right now. In a world where all the experts are being proven wrong, don't overthink it, freaks. And remember, we don't need a police state to fight the virus. We're going to end it there. Alex, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for taking some time to chat through this stuff with us today. Thanks, Alex. Anytime, guys. All right. Peace and love, freaks.